Building a Better Congress, One Effective Lawmaker at a Time. Moderator, Dean Allen Stam. Speaker, Professor Craig Bolden. Public Policy and Politics, Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy. Professor Bolden. Thanks for the introduction, and thanks for having me as part of Reunions Weekend. Uh, welcome, or welcome back. Um, as mentioned, I'm a member of the fairly new, now seven-year-old, Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy. Uh, and at the Batten School, we have faculty who study many, many different policy problems from a variety of angles. So we have a fantastic group that focuses on education, help, how to help this little guy uh, do better in school. Uh, we have others who are focused on health care and rising health care costs. Still others study gun violence and how to reduce those numbers. Others tackle issues of security, cybersecurity, for example. We have a wonderful group understanding the national debt and others taking on a variety of environmental issues. Beyond that, we're interested not only in these policy issues in and of themselves, but also in how the institutions of government uh, in the United States and around the world work to attempt to address these policy problems, sometimes making them better, sometimes making them worse, uh, and to understand those processes. My work tends to focus on one of the more dysfunctional of those institutions, the United States Congress. Uh, this is an institution that you've all heard of. This is an institution, if polls are to believe, most of you hate, right? So public approval at uh, near all-time low for this institution. It's one when we think about Congress, we often note that it is an institution made up of uh, these donkeys and these elephants, the Democrats and the Republicans. And over the past 20 years or so, we've seen them move further and further apart, uh, we know systematically that the parties are more polarized now than they've been in uh, about 90, 100 years, something like that. Um, we also know that uh, there is a lot of evidence that Congress is not getting the job done addressing those policy problems. Now, for some, that's fantastic because when Congress meddles, they make it worse. For others, uh, that's bad. At least they should give it a try. Um, Regardless, the common story is that it's Democrats against Republicans, it's really liberal people against really conservative people, and there's no middle ground, and they're not reaching compromise, and they're not getting anything done. All of that seems true, but all of that also seems to miss some big parts of the picture. And my co-author and I, uh, Alan Wiseman at Vanderbilt University, uh, have been working to think about Congress and the workings of Congress in a different way. There have been a ton of studies that have found how liberal and conservative members of Congress are, but what they're missing is another dimension of this puzzle. That is, some members of Congress, whether Democrats or Republicans, are simply more effective than others. They're more willing to cut those deals, to seek out compromise, to put forth new interesting and effective ideas, uh, and to help those navigate through the lawmaking process. And so we're interested in studying not just how left-right people are, but how effective those individual members of Congress are. And we went about writing a book on this subject that came out last year, and there's 
discount flyers available in the back. <laughs> Feel free to buy one. Um, and when we started out this project, uh, on the one hand, we thought, well, this could be the shortest book ever. Think about how ineffective Congress is. On the other hand, we think that there's a lot to be said, but to do this in a systematic scientific process, we needed to tackle one first immediate goal. That is, how do we measure how effective members of Congress are? We worked on a variety of processes, thought about what data are available, and eventually settled on 15 different metrics that help us understand how effective members of Congress are. Those are five different stages of the lawmaking process and three levels of the significance of bills. So let me talk through those with you. First, we're able to capture how many bills each member in Congress, and we're starting, and this book is about the House of Representatives, we're turning to the Senate uh, in the future. How many bills did they sponsor? Now, we have data on all of the Congresses we started in the early 1970s and work up to today. And so we coded up the about 200,000 bills that have been introduced in the House of Representatives over that time period and linked them to who the bill sponsors were. We focused then on how those bills moved through the lawmaking process. The next stage is did they receive AIC? Did they receive action in committee? Uh, and from that point of view, did they get some hearings? Did those bills get a markup? Did they get a subcommittee vote? All of those actions that take place within committee. Moving along, did they receive ABC, action beyond committee? Did they get on a House calendar? Did they get a vote uh, on the floor of the House of Representatives? From there, the next stages are did they pass the House uh, and did they become law? So for each member of the House of Representatives, uh, every bill that he or she sponsors, we track through each of these stages. Now, as I mentioned, and as you certainly believe, not every bill introduced in Congress is equal, and if we want a measure of effectiveness, we should take that into consideration, uh, and indeed we do. For about 5 to 10% of bills... We consider them substantive and significant. These are the big, contentious, partisan, but good policy, bad policy uh, types of bills. These are the big things. Uh, to make this an objective measure, we didn't want to code those up ourselves, and so we rely in the end-of-year summaries of Congressional Quarterly Almanac. These are the people who write about Congress and its internal workings all the time. And if the bills were mentioned there, we labeled them in this substantive and significant category. And that's about 5 to 10% of the bills. That's big immigration reform attempts. That's reforming Social Security. That's these uh, big issues that sometimes don't go anywhere, sometimes do. On the other end of the spectrum are the ones we should downgrade. This is the naming of post offices. This is National Cheese Day uh, and whatever else, right? The commemoratives. Uh, that's about 5 to 10% of bills that are introduced. Maybe they're the ones that get the most derision, but uh, certainly uh, we wanted to downgrade those. And so we used some identifiers, the word commemorative, the word naming, uh, and so on to identify those bills. And then in the middle, there are a lot of substantive issues. They're just a little more minor. Uh, and so the, about 80% of bills stay in that middle category. And so we develop these 15 indicators, five different stages and three levels of significance, uh, and then throw those into a formula. And the formula, I don't think you want to see, but essentially uh, has 
the ability to say, okay, we want more credit for moving further in the process, more credit for substantive and significant, less for commemoratives. Uh, And so out of this, we can generate a single legislative effectiveness score. So for every member of the House of Representatives, for every Congress from the early 1970s up through today, we score uh, in terms of this legislative effectiveness score. One way to think about this measure is that it is essentially capturing what share of everything in the lawmaking venue that's done in the House of Representatives can we attribute to each individual member, him or herself, uh, based on their sponsorship activity. And the first thing we did once we developed these scores was to take a look. Well, what are we capturing here? We were fearful that there might be a bunch of biases. We were fearful that we might not be tapping into fundamental processes. Uh, One view early on was maybe since Democrats have a much broader view of what Congress should be doing and what government should be doing, maybe Democrats will show up higher than Republicans. Turns out not at all. Really balanced across parties. Now, what Democrats are trying to accomplish are different than what Republicans are trying to accomplish, but they're all sponsoring bills to advance, let's call it Obamacare, to repeal Obamacare, right? I mean, we have different opinions uh, about uh, what policies should be done, but to think that this score was capturing Democrats and Republicans, it was not. However, it was capturing something that we certainly know about Congress, which is members in the majority party, whether it's Democrats or currently Republicans, outscore, outperform members of the minority party. Unsurprising, not worth writing a book about, right? Um, So hopefully we'll go beyond that. We found that seniority matters. We found that being a committee or subcommittee chair matters. From our point of view, that's just helpful to show us that we're capturing what we know about Congress in the measure that we've developed. So then we wanted to turn and say, what more can we say based on these scores? It turns out the answer is a lot. These scores are highly informative. Let's think at the freshman level. So this is a new member of Congress in his or her first two years, just elected, not a committee chair, not a subcommittee chair, may or may not be in the majority party, has no seniority, perhaps unlikely to get anything done, but our score captures all of that variance. And how much do they get done? Uh, And what we're able to do is look in their freshman grouping, are they above or below average in relative to other people in their party, because party we certainly have to control for, uh, according to our score. And what we found is that that early measure is a big indicator. Those who were above average within their party were about 50% more likely within a decade to seek higher office to run for senator, to run for governor, Rahm Emanuel as mayor of a big city, uh, to run for president or vice president. And those below average within their party were about 50% more likely than others to voluntarily retire from Congress, often with a quote about how dysfunctional the institution is, how they couldn't get done, uh, what they were hoping to do. And that's true. They weren't. They weren't effective in Congress and were more likely to retire. Different chapters of our book highlight different patterns here. So one thing that we were focused on was what makes up that majority party, minority party difference. And since we traced the different stages of the lawmaking process, we were able to pin it down. It wasn't the case that minority party members were sponsoring a lot less legislation. It was indeed the case that those two stages, action in committee and action beyond committee, were where the majority party was using its chairmanship of various committees and subcommittees to keep minority party bills off the agenda. 
So minority party members are about three times less likely to get hearings and markups and subcommittee votes, and about five times less likely to make it out of the committees and to the floor of the House of Representatives. That's where parties are doing their work, excluding minority party proposals. But once they get to the floor of the House, and I found this the most intriguing, once they get to the floor of the House, minority party members' bills were not less likely to pass the House, even though they had fewer votes there. Turns out they were more likely to pass the House and more likely to become law than proposals by majority party members. Now, this makes a little bit of sense if you think about it, because the only ones that made it out of committee had the support of the majority party, had these broader coalitions, and so on. Now, this is intriguing kind of for two reasons. One is that well, I kind of like the finding in and of itself. Um, but the second is that political scientists have been studying parties the wrong way in Congress. So most of those who have been studying parties in Congress go to that stage where there's a vote on the floor of the House of Representatives and see how polarized are the parties there. How much is it Democrats against Republicans? How much do the majority party win out in those sorts of circumstances? And what we argue in this book, in this particular chapter, is they're missing the boat. If you wait until you get that vote on the floor of the House of Representatives, you missed all of the party influence that three to five times that we were talking about uh, before that takes place in committees. And so that's where we need to focus more of our efforts to understand what committee chairs, what subcommittee chairs are willing and able to work with uh, members of the other party to get uh, ideas through. Another chapter of our book focused on a variety of subgroups within Congress, and this uh, part is about uh, these mythical creatures called Southern Democrats. So these used to exist. Yeah. These used to exist in Congress uh, and were a big force in Congress through the Civil Rights era, right up through the 1980s. Um, and they're an interesting group because um, when we think sort of theoretically about building up coalitions in Congress, we think about maybe the northern or more liberal Democrats, the more conservative Republicans, and if you have a middle group like Southern Democrats who tend to be more uh, moderate, sort of conservative Democrats, they should be the ones that decide what happens, right? Because they can either join with the Republicans or they could join with the Democrats. They can get that majority. They should be highly effective, and we found that they weren't. And in particular, we found that they weren't at dramatic levels as of the mid-1980s and up through the mid-1990s. This is when the Democratic Party was big enough and the Southern Democrats were small enough that the Democrats were able to say, no, we don't really care about your ideas any longer to the extent that we did previously. And according to our scores from the mid-1980s up through the mid-1990s, the Democrats, despite being in the majority party, had their Southern Democrats scoring on our scores exactly at the level of Republicans. They were just sort of dismissed from the party uh, and scored identically to those in the minority party. Now, whether that dismissal led to more collapse of Southern Democrats and to the Republicans uh, taking over uh, much of the South, as these pictures indicate, uh, that remains an open question. That's part of the debate of what happened to Southern Democrats. But they were certainly, according to our measure, dismissed uh, as part of the Democratic Party. In another part of our book, we say, well, what about this gridlock? How important are these effective lawmakers to overcoming policy gridlock? And one thing that we find is if 
a member is really effective in one Congress, they're really effective in the next Congress as well, and the Congress after that. This is a skill set of coming up with good ideas, building those coalitions, getting things done, that if we look at the biggest laws, these landmark laws that get all of the attention, president after president after president, and we want to say, well, who comes up with these? Who helps solve immigration crises and other issues? Look back at Congress. Who are the effective members there? And look forward and say, well, what are they trying to tackle now? And so one way of thinking about what is Congress working on and what is going to be accomplished is to take a look at the 20 most effective members of Congress and see what they're working on now. Those have the best chances of moving forward. Near the end of the book, we have a chapter we call Habits of Highly Effective Lawmakers. The way we did this part uh, was to use our scores to identify from the past 40 years the 20 most effective members of the House of Representatives. And then once we had that list, we dove in. We found out everything we could about them and the bills they sponsored and so on and found that they certainly had these five habits, much more so uh, than all of those hundreds of lawmakers who were not on our list. So I'll describe these habits kind of in groups. Habits one and two develop a legislative agenda rooted in personal background, previous experiences, and policy expertise. And habit two, develop a legislative agenda tightly focused on district needs. These are habits that I call perseverance. Now, perseverance is important in life. It's important in Congress. And I think of it in terms of the numbers. So the numbers tell us that as a member sponsors a bill, it has a 4% chance of becoming law. So think about that. You go out on an endeavor and you have a 4% chance of success. And at the end of a couple years, you look back and you see 4%. Uh, That could be devastating. Let's turn our attention to our district needs, to constituency services, and so on. But the effective lawmakers don't do that. For some reason, they say, let's stick with it. Let's introduce the same bill. Let's build up that coalition a little bigger the next time. Let's find out what didn't work about this past law. And why do they do that? Well, for example, one member of Congress who we highlight in the book escaped Nazi concentration camps and spent his time in Congress developing human rights issues uh, on a global scale. Another was in deep, deep poverty during the Great Depression and spent his time in Congress uh, dedicated to social welfare uh, services. Their deep-rooted concerns, 4% chance, 90% chance, I don't care, this has to be done, uh, is their motivation. Others are the policy wonks. They know the budget inside and out. This is what they care about. This is what they love. Why not do what you love? I don't care what the success uh, rate is. Uh, They know the budget. They know health care. They really get things done. And still others, for habit two, are introducing things that match their district interests. If they get them done, that's great. If they don't get them done, they can say back home, re-election focused, uh, you know, this is what I'm struggling with, uh, and I'm going to keep fighting for you. So that's the perseverance habits. Habit three is interesting because we identified these highly effective members before they became committee chairs and subcommittee chairs. Now, most of them did become committee chairs and subcommittee chairs, and so we were intrigued by how they used that institutional power. And they were more likely to do things like uh, work across the party lines within their committees and subcommittees, to do kind of clever things, bring celebrities in to draw attention to their issues for their hearings uh, and so on. They really uh, had a bunch of entrepreneurial aspects. 
Habits four and five are about coalition building. Be open to compromise even with those who are not natural allies. Cultivate a broad set of allies even beyond the house. So in the house, beyond the house for those two habits. These members are doing so. And we might say, well, there's nobody left to compromise with uh, at this point. But we tracked down the bills in the past three Congresses that were sponsored by these highly effective lawmakers and the votes that took place at the end of those, you know, get to the end vote on the house of the on the floor of the house. Only one of those bills had the parties split with one another. These are folks who are showing that you can build compromise. The average number of the other party that voted against these members' bills on the floor of the House of Representatives was five, right? These are effective lawmakers because they build up those coalitions. They show that it still can be done. Now, there might not be enough of them, but it still can be done. So when we got to the end of this book project, we said, hooray, uh, let's go out and celebrate. But we also found something intriguing, and that's that we were still as excited about this project at the end as we were at the beginning. We think that these data can be used in a variety of ways that are really interesting and important, and so we're tackling a variety of these issues. And so I want to spend a few minutes talking with you about what's next on our research agenda. The way I think about this is sort of by analogy. So imagine you were starting a fantastic new business. How would you go about making that business succeed? Well, the first thing you want to do is hire a bunch of great employees. The second thing you want to do is give them all of the resources they need to succeed, whatever training, whatever uh, abilities, office space, and so on. Uh, And third, the ones that succeed, let's keep, let's do everything we can to keep them there, maybe promote them. The ones who fail, we're going to have to let go. Uh, We want this new successful business uh, to move on forward. Or likewise, suppose you want to build a better school. Let's identify people who would be fantastic teachers and give them all the resources they need to succeed. And the hopefully few and far between who are not the best of teachers, we might have to find ways to get rid of them or push them aside. So too in Congress. If we think about how to build a better Congress, we might focus again on these three steps. How can we identify people out there in society, maybe when they're running for office, maybe before they even know that they should run for office, uh, and help them advance into Congress? For the members who are there, what can we do to help them become more effective, achieve their goals? And for the ones who aren't effective, under what conditions are members going to be voted out uh, of Congress? Uh, What do voters want? What do they care about? And so these three stages set up a variety of aspects of our research moving forward, and so I'll focus a little bit on each of those. The first one is, how do we identify out there people who would be really good uh, as lawmakers in Congress? In the introduction, I was uh, described as studying federalism, and certainly I do care a lot beyond Congress about states uh, and localities and the policies that spread across them uh, and what we learn from those. But another feature of American federalism is just all of these state legislatures that we have. And one thought was that maybe that's a great testing ground. Maybe that's a great training ground. Maybe the people who spend some time in state legislatures are going to build up a set of interests and concerns and abilities, 
all that compromise and great ideas and enter Congress better able to serve the American people uh, than people who don't have that experience in state legislatures. And so we have all the data. We know these members of Congress inside and out. We know the amount of time that they spent in state legislatures. So how does it work? What we found there really depended on the type of state legislature. Out in California, for all of their flaws, they also have something called a very professional state legislature. Members get enough salary that that's their full-time job. They meet year-round. They have large staffs. This is what people in the state politics literature describe as a professional state legislature. And when those members get to Congress, they outperform others. They actually are more effective uh, on our scores. In Virginia, a variety of other states, we have something we refer to as a citizen legislature. That has a variety of benefits, but it is different than those professional legislatures. Uh, Members don't meet year-round. They aren't paid enough that this is their main job. They don't have the same level of staff support. And what happens when those members enter Congress? It turns out they're not as effective uh, as members from the highly uh, professional state legislatures. And it turns out they're not even as effective as people who served no time in state legislatures. They're less effective uh, than people who served no time in state legislatures. Uh, Perhaps they're drawing the wrong lessons. Perhaps the institutions are so different from one another. um, But that's what the finding is. Another characteristic we might look to, and some organizations would certainly have us believe, uh, is if we have candidates and one's a woman and one's a man, could we expect uh, that the women would outperform or the men would outperform? Is there something about that? Again, we have the data. We can dive in. uh, And we looked at the data, and we found that controlling for all those other factors, majority party, seniority chairs, and so on, Women are indeed more effective as lawmakers in Congress, nodding heads over here, (laughs) disbelief, dismay elsewhere. Um, So we find that, and we want to know why and how does it actually play out. And there were kind of two components of that. One was, since we tracked the different stages of the lawmaking process, we were able to find that the stages that most require compromise and building coalitions, uh, the votes on the floor of the House, the uh, getting through committees, that's where women were particularly excelling relative to men. Uh, And secondly, the bigger finding was in the minority party, women dramatically outperform men in the minority party. When in the minority party, you can either say, I'm so committed to this issue, I'm going to do everything it takes, I'm going to persevere, I'm going to build across party lines, you have to, to get anything done. And women, on average, not all of them, were more willing to do that. Men, when we look in the minority party, were, again, on average, more likely to give up the ghost, score partisan points, move into an obstructionist mode, uh, and so on. Now, this was a study that we uh, released separately, uh, and it got Got some media attention. Uh, we were featured on an NPR story. There were a variety of op-eds about this, including in the Washington Post. There was uh, also a nice article, although uh, in Self Magazine, although it was tough to find because right before it there was this fantastic article on how to get sexier abs, and I'm sure that led to clicks away from the the story that we helped generate here. Reunion weekend would lead us to believe that education might matter. What about the members who come from these prestigious public and private universities for their undergraduate degree, for their law school, uh, and so on? 
do they outperform other members of Congress? Well, it turns out we didn't actually all gather all of that data for our initial project, but we've gathered it since then. Uh, and our tentative results are that on the overall introduction of bills and the overall success rate, there's not much difference depending on whether people were from elite universities uh, versus other universities. Now, almost all members of Congress have some college experience. Um, but we have those different categories. And if we look in those categories of bills in the big category, the substantive and significant, the big laws, the tackling the landmark laws, people from UVA and other top colleges and universities are much more likely to sponsor bills on those substantive and significant issues. And on those big issues, the laws that make it all the way through the process are much more likely to come from these folks uh, than from folks who don't have that uh, educational background. What about veterans? We know that over time there have been fewer veterans in Congress along with uh, increased polarization in Congress, perhaps more dysfunction in Congress. Is there a causal story there? Well, one way we could look at that would be the individual members. Some are veterans in any particular Congress. Some are not veterans in any particular Congress. Do they score differently from one another on our measure? And what can we say about those? This was a project that was tackled by our master's students uh, at the Batten School this past spring, working with uh, the Veterans for National Service Foundation. And what they found, doing all of the data analysis and diving way in and gathering all of the data, was no difference in effectiveness uh, between veterans and non-veterans. But over the past 40 years, they found that veterans are more centrist than other members of Congress. So more likely to be on the conservative end of the Democratic Party and the liberal end of the Republican Party. With equal effectiveness, these are some of the bridge builders in Congress. One additional feature that we're just on the cusp of beginning to explore about identifying people in the public who would be uh, wonderful members of Congress in terms of their effectiveness uh, might come to us from political campaigns. We know that as a society, we're somewhat divided on this particular issue, although tilting more in one way than another. Uh, now, uh, the American public is tilting towards wanting leaders who will compromise rather than stick to principles. In the past, that was not always the case. Maybe we're tired of the dysfunction. Um, but both of these are reasonable positions. Sticking to one's principles doesn't sound like a bad thing, and compromise doesn't sound like a bad thing. But members, when they are not yet in Congress but campaigning for Congress, say things. Many of them sound like compromisers. Many of them sound like stick-to-principles types. If we can gather the data, and we haven't yet, but if we can uh, and identify what they say during campaigns, we wonder if that's going to be linked into how effective they are as lawmakers once they get into Congress. And so that's a project that's still in the works. Now, these past five slides have highlighted that first stage. How can we identify somebody out there uh, who might make a really effective member of Congress? 
the second part of this uh, research project is how can we cultivate effectiveness from within Congress. I mentioned that one of our chapters of our book is dedicated to these five habits, and so we've been promoting those uh, writing op-ed pieces and talking to organizations about how they help members become more effective. And we're certainly open to working with those organizations to evaluate whether their programs working with members of Congress, uh, and we're potentially extending this to state legislatures as well, whether those who work with members to help make them more effective are actually effective themselves uh, at uh, helping members do that. We're also interested in this um, potential match or mismatch Uh, between what members really care about and the committees and subcommittees to which they're assigned. Now, if somebody comes in caring deeply about education and but they're finding themselves having to deal with the budget or health or something else, they might not be able to have that match between using their passions and skills uh, and using their institutional positions. And they have a choice. They can either say, well, I got what I got. I'll do the best I can within this committee or subcommittee. Or they can say, I'm so passionate about this issue. I don't have the institutional position now, but I'm going to keep working on it. I'm going to ask for a reassignment in Congress after Congress. How does that play out? And so we're studying those initial choices, the decisions to gain expertise, uh, and the the, uh, conditions under which people are reassigned from one committee and subcommittee to another. That third category, what happens with the members who are not especially effective? Under what conditions do citizens, voters, vote them out of office? Um, Here, again, we're early in our research career on this question, but tentatively, we think there's not much of this going on, right? Uh, If we just look at the data, we see, okay, how effective were they and what were the vote shares they got in the next election or what were their probabilities of success in the next election? There's no pattern there whatsoever, right? And so that doesn't seem to be the case. Now, there are two plausible hypotheses. One is voters don't care, right? The other is voters don't know, right? And the don't know possibility is a strong one if you're thinking about how effective your member of Congress is. Who talks about how effective members of Congress are? Well, it's the members themselves. They might be a little biased in the data that they come back. I haven't heard anybody touting how ineffective they are. Um, I've heard them tout that they are stopping horrible ideas. Now, I would argue that's different, and we can certainly talk about that. But if you only get one side of the story, who knows? And are there any ways to objectively, oh, wait, we came up with scores. Hmm. So potentially there are ways to objectively look at how effective members of Congress are. We wanted these data in citizens' hands as well as in academic hands and so on. And so accompanying the launch of our book, we came up with a website, thelawmakers.org. You can go there and click and find any member of Congress from the 1970s up to the present and find out how effective they are. Um, Now, we know that different members um, are going to be in different positions, be in the majority party, have more seniority, be committee chairs, and so on. And so in addition to giving their raw scores, we say, what's the benchmark? How do we think they should perform relative to others in a similar position in or out of the majority party, more or less seniority, more uh, a committee chair or not a committee chair? And therefore, we color code green, red, and blue. Uh, Green is dramatically outperforming one's benchmark, Uh, Red is dramatically underperforming one's benchmark. Blue is right on target. We also give rank within party, and we're hoping that helps uh, people generally find out more about the workings in Congress. 
Now, our book came out in the fall. There was also this thing in the fall called an election. Uh, <laughs> we didn't plan it that way. We would have loved the book to come out earlier. Uh, but since we launched a website right around election time, it received some notice. Uh, and the notice was interesting. Turns out the members who were highly effective wanted that information out there. Uh, Lamar Smith put this up on the front of his web page. Hank Johnson came up with an op-ed about it. John Conyers used his Twitter feed, right? So on and on. On the other end of the spectrum, they were largely silent. Those who did talk about it had their spokespeople say things like, clearly the authors don't understand how Congress works. Came out a little too late for us to put it on the dust jacket of our book. I think it would have sold a bunch of copies. Um, But kind of fun to get those anecdotes. Now, more systematic evidence, sort of a more scientific approach, is where we're going with this next. Um, In political science, there's a movement towards moving towards more experiments. Now, we have to be creative here. I'm not going to experiment on members of Congress. I'll take your advice on that front. We can, however survey citizens, and for some of them, give information about how effective their members of Congress are. For others, keep that information aside and see, would they vote differently? Do they think differently of their members? How much do they care once we have some information in their hands, and how much would they vote differently based on that information? So we're exploring that and setting up a a series of survey experiments along those lines at this point. Now, as you can tell, there's a lot of work to be done, lots of research projects, possibly another book, lots of articles moving forward. And one way we think about this is there are also great opportunities for students here. Um, The research endeavor is something certainly faculty love to do, but love to incorporate students in as well. Uh, I mentioned we had some master's students working on these projects uh, over the past semester. Uh, I have a couple PhD students from the politics department working with me and with Alan on some of these aspects uh, moving forward. And next spring, I'm teaching a class uh, at the undergraduate level where I'll have 20 to 30 students who will help with this project as well, help develop some hypotheses, conduct some interviews, gather some data, test those hypotheses, write up reports, uh, and really help move this project forward. So I'm excited uh, to be at UVA, to be at UVA with all of you, uh, and to have such terrific students to work with uh, moving into the future. Once again, thanks, and I'm happy to talk with you more about this project. thelawmakers.org. Yeah. Yes? So what do you think about um, term limits? It seems like your effectiveness increases every time, but what are your personal thoughts on setting legislative requests? Yeah, so this is one where we actually have pretty good data because we see what happened at the state legislature. A lot of state legislatures adopted those. Uh, The benefit was kind of get rid of people who were dysfunctional, uh, bring in new ideas. Um, The cost, as people described, was the loss of expertise. And what seemed to be the case is that some groups were really strengthened and other groups were really weakened. And the groups that were strengthened were staffers, We might like that, depending on whether we're staffers. Many of my students are now staffers. 
um, but interest groups as well. Uh, those special interests that we might want to deprive of access or not have that close, well, they're the ones with the expertise. They're the ones that these new lawmakers had to rely on, and so we see a lot more of their power and influence in those state legislatures that adopted term limits. Um, for good and ill on those fronts, my tendency is that's for ill, uh, and I prefer to allow expertise to develop among members. Now, that has to be coupled with some other mechanism for removing the ineffective lawmakers, and I think that's where this latter part of the story was coming in. Yes? Um, I was curious if you had looked at um, the um, competitiveness of the members' district, mm -hmm. and I'm thinking in terms of gerrymandering by state legislatures, and, or just whether, given the demographics, the, safe, the seat is safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that was fun, right? So we're trying to disentangle the did you get a vote share because of how effective you are or did your vote share or influence how effective you are. Like I said, the latter one we didn't, or the former one we didn't seem to find much. But uh, the, the latter one, does your safety help in your effectiveness? Here we had two competing hypotheses. Right. Yeah. The, these were the hypotheses. On the one hand, you know, you're more safe. You can dedicate more time to lawmaking. You're less, con you know, in those tight uh, races. On the other hand, pfft, what, <laughs> what do I care? Right. Um, and what we found was both of those take place. There's this big curvilinear the uh, pattern. The people from non-contested seats aren't very effective. The people from highly contested seats aren't very effective. And the middle, this sweet spot where you have enough. Uh, leeway to not be focused on constituency services all the time, uh, but they're still holding you accountable, maybe, um, seems to be where they uh, perform the most, right around 60 to 65 percent of the vote share. Yes? Um, money. Have you looked at personal wealth hmm. and then fundraising ability? Mm -hmm. Those who got a lot of bucks, they tend to be yeah, so we haven't, and I should have thrown that among uh, the, the future projects since the, we're, we're working on that. Um, the political science literature in that area really has run up to this obstacle because they see these really close linkages between who gets what money and how they vote, for example. Um, and it was tough to discern whether that's the money is influencing them to vote in a particular way, or people who vote in a particular way are funded so they stay in Congress, right? So that, which direction that goes is tough to discern, but we think our scores are going to help here, uh, because coming in as a freshman, we don't know if you're effective on health care. You are effective on health care. Okay, here comes potentially the flow of money, and then we can disentangle, well, you didn't have the money before, you have the money now. Did that influence also your patterns moving forward? Um, we have a little bit of data, but there's a lot out there, and we're still collecting How about it. those who, who are gazillionaires versus those who, who, who aren't? Yeah, we haven't looked at that yet. Uh, what's your guess on how that's going to play out? <laughs> I guess having had, uh, once living in a district which had the most wealthy member of the House, uh -huh. he wasn't particularly effective. I don't think I'm going to go look him up. On your sure, district. feel free. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, so we can, all, we can gather all of that now, and it's, uh, it, it goes on for a while, for, for back for a while now. I think it's only pretty good since 1990 or something like that, but it, we still have enough data to, to dive in. Um, I hate to have to bring this to a close. <gasps> I am so sorry. 
Oh, we have a ton of time. All right. Let's take questions until you're all sick of me. So that's right. Uh, yes, and then yes. So yes, in the green sweater. Uh huh. And I think the data plays that out pretty strongly in terms of who goes out to vote under what circumstances, and the pressure on primaries uh, is really strong, and that's, that's been established. I'm sorry? Right. If you win the primary, you win the, win the general election in many of those cases. That's, that's exactly right. Now, uh, it's kind of intriguing, right? We would imagine that potentially those who are in the middle are going to be more effective. They already have that natural coalition building, so then we could also plot this out on that ideological dimension. And it turns out there's not much of a pattern there, and it plays out as follows. People who are more extreme introduce a lot more bills. Right? They're passionate about these issues on either side. Now, their success rates are lower, but since we have this combination of how many do you introduce and how successful are you, it kind of just all flattens out across the board. Yes? After the, con- after the constitutional uh, meeting in Philadelphia, Benjamin Franklin was reported to have been asked, what type of government have you made for us and reported to see the Republic that you can keep it? Mm-hmm. Or or we threw that quote at the end of our, uh, beginning of our last chapter. Yes, so how optimistic are we on the big issues, right? We have a republic, and is it doomed? Are we going to make it work? What can we do, right? So on the one hand, we have very polarized politics right now. Um, we have inability to reach compromise on big issues. I share both sides of that. I see cases where Congress has reached compromises that have created more policy problems. I see cases where they've reached compromises that actually move things forward. I think they have no chance of addressing these policy issues if they can't reach compromise. Then there's a question of, well, what is the compromise and how does that play out? And so this is a time when it's more crucial than ever to focus on, well, who can reach those compromises? Who can get things done? Who are these effective lawmakers? Now, if we focus on them, there's room for hope because we're seeing that there are still a number of highly effective lawmakers in very important issue areas. They have to struggle a lot more to reach across party lines. In our chapter on uh, gridlock and overcoming gridlock, the issues where entrepreneurship is really needed are tough ones. These are highly gridlocked issues and where a few individuals make all of the difference. We track these highly effective members and we find that they still can get things done. And so to the extent that we can help cultivate more effective members, uh, bring them into Congress, and make sure they have every opportunity, I'm optimistic. Research is still early on whether that can be done, um, but that's, that's where we're coming down on that issue. In the back. Hi, I'm curious about your benchmarks and expectations mm-hmm. on the website. Yep. So how exactly, you mentioned it's pretty, but how exactly do you establish that you control for 
Yep. So the simplest answer is if we took a generic member, we know what, whether they're in the majority party or not. We know how many years they've been there, and we know whether they're a subcommittee or committee chair. Each of those is going to boost or detract from what an expectation is. So technically, we run a regression, and the expected value pops out as our benchmark. And then that's the average. About half should be above them. About half should be below them. And that's how we draw those lines. Yes? Can you determine whether the affected members are more likely to be reelected? We see no pattern there whatsoever. And so that was the bit of dismay that I was expressing (laughs) at that early stage. Oh, yes. Thank you. Um, so I'm, I'm sorry I came in late, so I missed some yeah. of what you said, but I worked on incomers for decades as a staffer. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, in terms of effectiveness, how do we assess uh, the effectiveness of a member? For example, the issue of protection of Affordable Care Act includes five bills that Senator Herb Cole wrote, but they're not standalone in that Right. How do you Right. So what we see is we give a bit of credit for each bill that's introduced. And then the credit increases as it moves further through the process. So if there are a number of bills that made it through committee, uh, got some hearings, uh, made it through committee, were sent over to the Senate, halfway gutted, you know, <laughs> brought back and that sort of thing, um, they're getting lots of credit for those early stages now. Only the one and its sponsor that makes it to law gets the fullest of those credit. But we really care about this, we really want to capture the, yeah, those early stages and those early proposals and their progress uh, matters. We also are upgrading the bills that get all of the attention, Congressional Quarterly Almanac write-up. Those are what we call the substantive and significant category. So those two get a lot more credit than the post office namings uh, and what uh, whatnot. Um, and so out of that um, comes a on average, what share of what's done in Congress can be attributed to each uh, individual member? In the big omnibus bills, though, the messy bills, if you will, yeah. they, sometimes those bills are not ever introduced as yeah. standalone matters, so they just appear in our final law. Right. And I guess it might be hard to track the lawmaker or the actual lawmaker. Yeah, so, I mean, they, they are voted on, right? So they, they, they do go through these various stages. Um, when we're thinking about, okay, so we introduced this measure no measures perfect, what would we do going forward? We're playing around with there's some pretty interesting possibilities going forward. One is some software that's introduced for that reason there, right? Uh, Kids might not be putting in their own work, uh, some plagiarism software. Now, we can use that in Congress to say, okay, here's the end law. Now, what bills tentatively introduced had the same language, and so who can we give better credit to uh, on those omnibus bills. Now, that's a ton of work. It doesn't mean we shouldn't do it, um, but uh, that's a direction that we're thinking of going. These scores could be improved in a variety of ways. One way that we could improve these scores for people who really care about not just getting anything done, but getting particular things done, we've generated a separate score in each of 19 different issue areas. So if you care about health, we have a health effectiveness score and so on. So that's one way we're going. Um, For bills that are uh, scored by CBO on their budget impact, we could come up with a separate 
effectiveness and what do you do to the budget type of score. Uh, and we're also thinking about how effective are you in pulling in a liberal direction or pulling in a conservative direction because there are some measures of those as well. Uh, now, those are further off the horizon, um, but those are some of the directions that we're thinking of. Yes? Yep. Have you uh, looked into any correlation between uh, effectiveness and uh, going to prison? Incarceration. Uh huh. We haven't. We haven't. I will keep that on the potential agenda, right? So, so in the spring, students will get to explore a variety of things, right? Uh, and that's one possibility. Okay. The learned your lesson type of approach to the rest of this. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. So the microphone will help us record the uh, the questions better. So. Um, Individual careers, we have lots and lots of lawyers in Congress, and we have lots and lots of career politicians in Congress. For instance, were, did you find that a profession outside a law, perhaps business, uh-huh. showed any effective or what that looked at? Looked so like? we've only tentatively looked at those data. They are available. Where others have looked at those data, they do find that they're linked into the issue areas that people sponsor in in some ways that you would expect, um, but I'm not sure how that plays out in effectiveness. So yet on the radar screen. I'll keep that up. Thanks. Down here. Wherever the microphone ends up, it's fine. So 10 years from now at Reunion Weekend, you'll be presenting here, and you'll have a more refined... Uh, uh, and, a beleaguered look on my face. And, 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 well, I, I expect, is this, is this sort of what your vision is, that you will continue to refine this? Uh, and also in 10 years, you would have a number of studies of state legislature, leg, legislatures... Uh, that would be available to, to, to the public because th- this is a fascinating development yeah. that actually uh, voters could go and look and say, hmm, my guy's mm-hmm. not quite, or lady's not quite measuring mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of the beleaguered comment uh, is there's a ton to do. Our goal in releasing the book was hopefully enticing a lot of young graduate students, young professors to help pick up the mantle and carry this forward. Our agenda is really aggressive. We don't have all the funding we need for that. We don't have all the time we need for that. We're hoping this is something that's so stimulating that others will pick up on it. If it's me 10 years from now and nobody else has picked up on this, I certainly hope I'll have state legislatures scored up and Senate scored up. Uh, Probably won't take it to other countries by that point in time. But there's more than enough work for lots and lots of people to do on this. And I'm very optimistic. I think this is a terrific way to go, but I'm biased. Um, I know that in the past, uh, political scientists have a tendency to latch on to areas where there's data, and so we're happy to provide all the data and give them the the startup. They don't have to go through all of this process. Uh, And so that's, that's part of our goal, too. 
has anyone in either of the two parties or any political consultants reached out to you to see if you could help them in election process or in their effectiveness? Uh, has anyone reached out to you, or are you reaching out to anyone to see if this, this could be used in practice? So where we've mostly been talking to members of Congress and their staffs uh, has been in refining the measures and thinking through uh, things along those lines. What are we missing? How could we do this better going forward? Uh, there was a wave of people reaching out to us right around the time when we launched uh, things. Uh, and we are interested in the scientific end of working with organizations that um, work with members of state legislatures, Congress, whatever. What advice do they give to their members? How do they help them uh, succeed and do those matter? Because now we would have a record of, well, which members have you worked with? What were their scores before? What were their scores after? Now there's some selection bias built in there, um, but I think we could confront that. Uh, and these organizations are really sincere in many cases of wanting to help uh, out in the process. Now maybe with a liberal or conservative agenda, but still helping uh, out in that process. And I think in many cases they would be interested in having some evaluation. Well, this worked, this didn't work, uh, and so on. And we're open to that. We're, as I said, uh, at this point, understaffed and underfunded, um, but, uh, but we're certainly working in those directions. Maybe they can What's that? Maybe they can pay for it. Maybe they can. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to know, I was interested in the information you presented about the state legislatures. Um, first, how many in Congress came from state legislatures? Mm -hmm. Do you have like a... Yeah, it's a third to a half. A third to a half. Yeah. Um, because I guess, and what, what about the number of citizen-based and professional state legislators? Yeah, so there are more from the citizen end of things just because there are more on that end, um, although the more professional ones are larger, so there's that playing out. Um, uh, and I just sort of did the two ends of the spectrum, so there's probably about a handful of really high-end professional states. There's about 10 states that pay their legislators nothing other than a per diem level, uh, and in between is kind of a, it's about a wash, but the extremes were what caught our attention. Yeah, Yeah, I think they used the description to describe the members as citizens exactly. rather exactly. than the citizens exactly. as having much say beyond that. Thank you. Yes. I have the microphone back. Um, I'm really looking forward to looking at your website, and I certainly endorse the idea of throwing the rascals out. But I wonder beyond that, has your work suggested any procedural reforms within the legislative process itself? One thing that came up time and again is what's going on in committees and subcommittees. Um, I mentioned the finding on women being more effective. There's a coupled finding with that that um, women tend to sponsor on different issues than men, and the issues that women tend to sponsor on much more than men are the most gridlocked of issues, and that gridlock happens in committee where those issues are dismissed outright. Likewise, minority party-sponsored uh, issues are, in many cases, dismissed outright in committee. Now, that's perhaps one of the benefits of being a committee or subcommittee chair, but a lot more research needs to go into who are those members who are committee and subcommittee chairs and how do they make those decisions. Uh, I often get a question about, well, you're capturing sort of a 
progressive score of moving things through Congress. What about a obstruction score, how could we do that, right? And often there aren't fingerprints and objective data that we can get onto on, you know, who's able to stop legislation, except we know committee chairs and subcommittee chairs have that discretion, and they can decide what moves forward and what does not move forward. So we're working on generating obstruction scores uh, for subcommittee chairs of saying, what do you let through? Is it only things from your own party? Is it only things that are really tightly ideologically aligned with your own interests? Is it only things potentially funded by particular organizations? Uh, and so on. Um, that's an arena in which we can tap into that and kind of sort of see as that correlated with our other scores also. I have kind of two issues that I was hoping you could address. One would be, I understand you studied the House, and I'm wondering what your hypotheses are about what would be strikingly similar or different with the Senate. But I had a methodological question, too, and I haven't seen the statistical models you're using, but mm-hmm. I'm wondering how, how sensitive is effectiveness to interactions between two or more members and how critical is it to find partners or clustering or things that are not just independent actors. So I'm inferring you're using maybe some kind of multivariate linear regression, but I'm wondering how do you account for, you know, is effectiveness critically dependent on, you know, a Republican finding a Democratic counterpart and then they collaborate over a long Mm -hmm. period of time or -hmm. or things that are more nuanced like that? Um, Okay, so those two questions, first about the Senate and then about um, networks, let's call them. Okay, so uh, for the Senate, uh, we're thinking there will be a variety of patterns, but we also know the Senate works very differently. Um, And so that actually bothers us at the first stage. That is, we don't want to use the same measures and metrics to come up with a score. For example, if any senator can put an item right onto the floor of the Senate, that's not going to be the same as having struggled through subcommittees and committees uh, in the House. And so we want to make sure that we capture that there's actually something involved other than senatorial prerogative uh, to move further through the process there. Um, And so we're working on, well, what language within the reports by the Library of Congress can we use to better capture that? We just don't want to get it wrong. Uh, So that slowed us down a little bit on that front. Uh, Nevertheless, we expect the big things will be the same, Uh, the majority party and so on. We'll explore some of these kind of hot findings, you know, women in the Senate we've heard a lot about uh, recently and so on, so we'll explore that. Um, And so, uh, you know, we're intrigued. Um, But open scientific process means that's a nice replication data set on on the other hand. Um, In terms of networking, uh, so political scientists have studied networks in Congress mostly through co-sponsorships. So I sponsor something, who do I bring on as co-sponsors? And now we can say what percent were in the other party. We can talk about really geeky network analysis of uh, what's your centrality score in a cluster analysis, that sort of thing. Those are correlated with effectiveness. Now, we haven't done the systematic uh, version of that study and published anything on it, um, but those are more effective. Even the level of how bipartisan is somebody in the speeches they make on the floor of the House, that is highly correlated with our measure as well. And so there is this reaching across party lines. But it's not always just the centrists. There are a lot of people who are on the extreme uh, ends of the spectrum who nevertheless know how to cut a deal uh, and to get something done. Uh, And 
yeah, I really want this position, but I'm going to advocate for this position because I can get it done uh, type of thing. Um, so it's not just centrist. It's those who know how to work the system. I want to follow up on that. I've read a lot about coalition building and everything, and, and one, an article after article, I, I read this comment, that part of the reason that we don't see as much of that in Congress now is that they don't spend as much time together, and they don't get to know each other. And this has been tied into even the change in the social scene in the Washington, D.C. area. Back in the 60s, you had a lot of dinner parties hosted by the K. Grahams and, and Pamela Harriman's of the world. And now things are much more either fundraising-oriented or the members of Congress are back home on the weekends, and they don't really get to know each other and know where they can build coalitions. And yep. Whether you liked him or hated him, Lyndon Johnson was very effective because he knew people, he knew how far he could push them. Do you think that that change in the social scene is part of it? Do you think that part of the issue is that these people really don't know each other? They don't spend time together as human beings and, and get to know what's really going on with someone else? I think so. I think that's part of it, and I think a lot of it is what do you have to do back home to get reelected? What do you have to do with fundraising and so on? Now, we haven't studied and proven that. I'm not sure exactly how we would. Um, but I think one of the things that we find uh, with seniority and then as we were diving in sort of qualitatively, who are these members who get things done, they spent the time figuring it out, right? What, who, who else is here? What can I do? How can I build up this coalition? I had 50 votes last time. I need 218. How can I you know, build that up? What were these 50 people doing? What was it about them that really helped uh, get things done? They're always asking those questions, and they're relying on staffers uh, where they can to help build those coalitions and interest groups uh, to help build those coalitions uh, and others. And so they're still finding ways to make it work, uh, but it's tougher, uh, and I'm not surprised that there's sort of less of the ins and outs and knowing who goes where and, and all of those sorts of aspects. Less trust as well. I mean, dramatically less trust. Um, I wanted to ask about um, if you have really done or intend to do any um, uh, real analysis of the districts that people come from and the effect of being in a gerrymandered district other than, you know, rather than a, a district that is a lot more competitive. You mentioned mm -hmm. a little of that. Uh, and I'd, I'd like just to sort of uh, pick your, your brain about what you think is the future of gerrymandering and, and yep. do you see anything happening that's going to change that? So our work on effectiveness has not yet gone in that area, but it is something that's important, and I've really followed where the literature is going in this area. So it is interesting what uh, districts look like. Some of them look very crazy. The, some of the proposals are just more you know, blocky districts. Uh, when we look at those proposals as political scientists, we wonder, well, what would those districts look like? And a lot of what's going on is sort of the self-segregating of Americans. Um, you know, really more liberal inner cities, really more conservative uh, suburbs. Uh, you could draw 
even crazier districts that cut across those, right? But pretty normal, not crazy looking salamander districts would nevertheless be quite polarized in many cases. Moreover, the Senate is almost as polarized as the House and there's no gerrymandering going on there. So there's uh, just this nature that there is polarization. It's not solely, even mostly, uh, due to uh, gerrymandering, although it is linked into who's representing what districts and what do the citizens want. Now, I like having the citizens get what they want in their members, and there is a close alignment there, but that doesn't address the, yeah, one group of citizens wants this, the other group of citizens wants this, uh, and what can we do about it? Craig, this is our final question, but after you answer his question, can you follow up a little bit by talking about the Batten School? Yes, I'd be happy to. Uh, we came late, so I apologize if you've already addressed this. Is it correct that there have been past periods of time where there's been prolonged uh, legislative gridlock? And given how long this gridlock has gone on, what all has to happen for the gridlock to end, and how long is it going to take? Okay. Um, so, yes, there are periods in the distant past where the parties have been more polarized, um, where the overall percentage of uh, bills that are introduced to becoming law has been this low. Um, the period we're studying is about 40 years, and across that period, a bill sponsored has about a 4% chance of becoming law. That's not unusual for the entirety of uh, congressional history, but now it's at 2 to 3%. So we are facing an issue there. Uh, and uh, if we break it down by issue areas, and we've looked at 19 of them, there are some that are highly gridlocked and some that are less gridlocked. When we look at those, we see that there are dramatic swings. Uh, there are times when we address national security. There are times when we address health care. There are times when we address immigration and so on. Um, now, we're at a point where a few more of those have clustered on the low end, um, but I'm not that negative along those lines. Um, I think more it is some of the distrust, some of the money, some of the polarization uh, that we would fear what's going on, and some of those have to be shaken out. I showed a survey of whether Americans want compromise or want sticking to principles, uh, and that's changed over time. I think we're at a point of something of consensus and disgruntlement with the lack of reaching across party lines. Now, how to reinforce what the Americans seem to want with the other structures of primaries and financing and the rest of that uh, is uh, just a thorny, difficult question, and I don't think we're at solutions for that or near solutions for that, unfortunately. Um, for our point, from our point of view, this is highly gridlocked times are times when more than ever we need effective lawmakers, uh, those who are willing to make these deals, and so we're kind of bullish on our research agenda, whether we're you know, kind of bearish on Congress as a whole. Um, I have two minutes left, uh, so... <laughs> Let me very briefly say what we're up to at the Batten School. So the Batten School is the newest school at UVA. It is a school of leadership and public policy. It was uh, started with a very generous gift from Mr. Frank Batten. Um, and we have uh, started that program seven years ago with a small master's degree program where students can stay on for their fifth year uh, and not only get their bachelor's degree,
degree, but also get their master's degree. That program was very successful and continues to be very successful. But four years ago, along with when I came to UVA, we also developed a master's program where students come to UVA from elsewhere, having already had their uh, bachelor's degree, and spend two years with us getting their master's degree. And two years ago, we started an undergraduate major. So we have now in the Batten School uh, those different programs and different groups. We have some centers. Uh, You might see big banners for the Social Entrepreneurship Center. Uh, We have a center for leadership. We have centers dedicated to healthcare and education and the workforce. Um, So we're doing a lot on scholarly grounds, and we're doing a lot with students. It's an exciting time at the Batten School. Um, And uh, I'm happy to talk with you after about some of those initiatives as well. Thanks once again for coming out. Um, And one last comment.